Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution podcast. Adrian here. Thanks heaps for joining me once again. I can't do it without you. It's what makes it all so worthwhile. And I really appreciate the feedback as always. It was my honour and privilege to talk to Peter Korn, who's the founder and executive director of the Centre for Furniture Craftsmanship in Maine, United States. He is also an author of a number of books, among which why we make things and why it matters, the education of a craftsman, which is the book that we're going to talk about at length today. Without further ado, please welcome Peter Korn. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. It's Adrian Potter here. Yeah, this is Peter. Peter, how are you? Good to talk to you. I'm well. That's great. Are you ready to do a podcast? Okay. Yeah, look, we're going to talk a lot about your book, Why We Bake Things and Why It Matters. And in that book, you ask a fundamental question, how can we live a good life? I'm just wondering if in 20 words or less, you can answer that question. Oh, sure, I can. <laughs> people, people answer that question all the time. Sometimes it only takes two or three words. Yeah, um, yeah. Right? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll yeah. when you're 17. Yeah. Well, I have to say that that uh, that question is 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 a question that that uh, since the beginning of writing, since the beginning of history, that's the main question people mm. ask at bottom line, and and the and it's been successfully answered for thousands of years. And what what I find interesting is that we can't. I I certainly can't answer it better than philosophers or other people have. For centuries and centuries, I don't think anyone can because it's not that we need new answers so much as we need the old answers recast in language we can understand today. Mm. In a sense, every generation faces the question, what is a good life? How do you live it? And every generation has to answer it for itself because it simply can't hear the answers that other generations have come up with because the language is stale. That wasn't the response you expected because I'm avoiding the question. But <laughs> it's an individual question say, too, isn't it? Well, I will say personally, based on my own experience, what makes for a good life is first good health. I mean, really, without mm. good health, it's so hard, and 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 that's not the sort of thing the question contemplates, but given that sort of platform that you might have of good health in life, then for me, it's been a a life in which you get to bring new things into the world out of your imagination in a way, and just the act of doing that, whether it's making something in your workshop or coming up with an idea for a business or, or coming up with an idea for a recipe. Uh, 
the 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 act the work you put into bringing that idea into the real world the physical shared world that's really gratifying work and uh and so for me that is a core component of living a good life is having the privilege and the will to be able to engage in that activity in some aspect of your life mm. you break it down into a search for meaning and fulfillment and it's such an interesting idea, isn't it? It's, can you talk to the notion of meaning and fulfillment? Yeah, I think that, that um, one of the problems that any sort of philosophical or political discussion one might have, one of the problems with those discussions is that the parties to those discussions are using words without having the same meanings applied to the words. So meaning and fulfillment are really slippery words. Mm. And we could just talk about them all day and never be talking about the same thing. So mm. one thing I did in writing why we make things is try at least to some extent to define what I meant by meaning and fulfillment or what I came to understand through the writing process about. And, and when you talk about the meaning of life for an individual, what, what I came to see that as was a person feels their life has meaning to the extent that they feel their actions and thoughts make a difference in some larger moral sphere. Mm. And so that moral sphere, if you were a religious person, Adrian, let's say you were practicing uh, Catholic, for example, you would feel that you would have a moral sphere in mind where you wanted your actions to make a difference, and that would be the moral sphere described by Catholicism. But you could be a uh, atheist humanist, and your moral sphere might be the betterment of mankind, or your moral sphere might be the betterment of your family or community. It, it varies, but it's the idea that your thoughts and actions make a difference mm. in that larger sphere that's larger than yourself that uh, that I think is the source of meaning in people's lives. Yeah. And fulfillment? Um, fulfillment, f from my experience of it, is a, it's really not an intellectual thing. It's, it, it's, it's more, oh, God, it's not exactly bodily-centered, but it is a feeling that you are exercising your human capacities to the greatest extent possible. So it's, it's like when you're in the shop and you're using, like, I've just gotten back in the shop because uh, much more than I had time for previously because I'm working part-time due to mm. the coronavirus. Yeah. And I'm 68 years old, and my hands, which had been quite strong when my 20s and 30s as a, as a full-time woodworker, mm. have, have become um, typist's hands, you know, uh, sitting at a computer running a school mm. and occasionally teaching. And now they're getting strong again, and uh, it's such, such a nice feeling. So being in the shop where you're bodily engaged in something and your skills are engaged and your mind is engaged and your aesthetic sense is engaged and you're dealing with the real materials of the real world and not just imagination, um, that's a place where, where you're, uh, I guess, to use the, oh, what am I looking for? The, the, the phrase that's very common, using head, heart, and hand. In yeah. that's, that's, that's what happens in the shop. 
when you're doing that, I think that is fulfilling. That's where you, one has a sense of fulfillment. And it's using those in the process of adding something to the world in a, that, that is of value, again, not just to yourself, but other people. And that's, I mean, I'm sure that sounds really abstract to anyone listening, like, well, that's just more bullshit, you know, uh, uh, coming out of someone's mouth. But that's the best I can do to explain the, th- the things I think about. I've, I've spent a lot of time learning learning by writing what what the import of my ideas were and, and trying to be more exact about them. And still, it only comes out to the – you can only do it in words, and words are – Words are not the real deal. But the one thing I wanted to say about fulfillment is the way I see it, it's not something like you achieve and then you live in a state of bliss forevermore. It's not like, oh, well, you achieve nirvana, and once you get to that threshold, somehow you're always in that state of being. Uh, fulfillment is the way you feel while you're doing things. Mm. And, and when you stop doing things... It's like you stop turning the crank on the on the generator, the wires go dead. You uh, it so the wonderful thing about fulfillment is you can always engage in things, creative things, activities, work, and get the get things humming and and, and generate your own sense of fulfillment without the need for outside structure to help you. And then the downside is that you that it's work. It's always work. You don't have a sense of fulfillment just because you've done something in the past, like won a Nobel Prize or written a book or gotten a sports medal or something like mm. that. Those, that's, those are fleeting pleasures, and that's different than that sense of fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah, and look, your whole book is about using work as a pathway, isn't it? And mm-hmm. it, it's the addition of the word hands to the head and the heart. I think everyone would be pretty aware of meaning and fulfillment with their heart or their head, but the hands as a pathway, as a conduit towards we all words vision for a good life is really, really interesting. Yeah, I was, I just want to say I was, I was, I tried, hard, first of all, I should say that writing that book, I didn't know what I was going to say when I wrote the book. Uh, no. it, writing the book was, was as much a learning experience as developing a new design is in the shop. You, mm. you have an idea, but then you test it and you critique it and you say, what's not working here? And then you come up with another way of approaching it. And I had some hunches going into writing that book, some feelings about what mattered in life and what, and what was important about craft, but I didn't have answers. And, it took me, I'd been thinking about this stuff for years. And yeah. it, it took me till I was 54 years old, I think I was, one, not 2005, that I said to myself, you know, I've been thinking about this stuff without getting it very far forever. If I start writing about it, even if I only write one word a day, I will be ahead of where I am now. So I promised myself to write what, at least one word a day. And mm. for five years... I did not miss a day of getting at least one new word down on this thing I was writing. Yeah. And that's how long it took, five years of writing every day till I had enough of a manuscript that was coherent intellectually to start um, showing it to other people and getting feedback and critiques and 
moving towards finding a publisher. Yeah. Um, so it was a long process of thought, which completely sidetracked me from the thing I wanted to tell you. But now I forgot, so let's go on. <laughs> just, I was just, <laughs> That's what happens. Yeah, look, nah, look, I'm totally good with that. But you, in your book, you talk about the notion of design. I'm just going to flick through my pages Sorry, here. the notion of what, Adrian? Design. Yes. And what you've just talked about there seems – you're talking about this notion of design. You can design a book. You can design a process. You can design a chair. And you can design a good life. And it seems that as you're writing that book, the design was kind of coming to you. It was a creative process. Yeah. So design, uh, uh, to use design in a very general sense, design is a, well, design in furniture making, design as I practice it or as the people who teach here teach it, is, is simply an, is finding the most efficient way to explore new ideas. For example, you know, when we're designing furniture, almost everyone starts, even if you're going to work on a computer eventually, starts with a pencil and paper because there's nothing yeah. faster for ideation yeah. than, than sketching, right? And then you go, as you refine an idea, to more cumbersome tools or processes like making mock-ups or models and things that take more time. You invest more time in in later iterations to refine your idea and then try new alternatives. But pretty much any creative thought process is like that. Again, no matter how you're applying it in life. So that's, that's part of what you're saying. But mm. again, you're one of the problems that we're going to find in this discussion is my mind has become completely unretentive as I age. So, <laughs> uh, uh, you you know you show me a path I'll run down it like like a young retriever uh, and then I'll forget where I was supposed to be. Yeah, that's fine. That's okay. Look, my mind's the same too. I'm yeah, only well, fifty, so wait. there you go. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the next part of my life. How about that? Look, we started off talking about the notion of having hands as a pathway, like doing things with our hands and why that might be so important. Can you just articulate a little bit more on the importance of using our hands? Yes, and you reminded me where I was going earlier. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, <a> pleasure. <laughs> all right, and here's what it was. So the reason I started talking about the process of writing the book mm. is because in writing the book, one of the things I set out to do was state everything that I had to say positively rather than negatively. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's authors who, who one reads in the philosophy side of things who, who are highly like Richard Dawkins, who are, who, who are just really angry in their writing about other people's points of view and attack them. And I thought if what I, if what I think will stand up, if I just say it positively, that's all you have to do. And then the imp any negative implications for other points of view are intrinsic, and people will either think about that or they won't. It doesn't matter. Well, one of the starting places for me in writing the book was having been a craftsman at that point for 30-something years and being in a field that's regarded as second-rate to the fine arts by the larger mm. society. The work of the hand is 
this is not news to anyone who's listening to to you or or it practices a craft. The work of the hands is regarded as less important than the work of the mind in our society and has been for about 600 years. So in some ways, I was writing in response to that and uh, and had to think about, again, thinking about why I found so much value in craft and why the people I knew found so much value mm. in practicing a craft. Um, what was it about it that made it distinct? And so in looking at the difference, for example, between the crafts and the fine arts today, the way they're practiced, what I found is that they are actually practiced almost identically in the sense that both fields are part of one larger field where people explore new ideas that have never existed before by making physical things mm -hmm. for the most part. You could argue around the fringes of art, people aren't making physical things. There's conceptual art. There's places where craft blurs into fine art. But as a general rule, that's a fairly good distinction. Mm -hmm. And what they have that's different is that the fine arts for my lifetime and still uh, is dismissive of skill because of this historic applied arts versus fine arts divide in society. Uh, this, but the crafts, people who practice crafts, they celebrate skill so that the work is actually about the value of material and the value of working material well and why that is important to understanding one's own humanity. So I should say, look, I run a, I run a school. We have about 400 students and 40 or 50 faculty come through a year. So mm. I meet a lot of woodworkers. Very few have the least interest in thinking about this stuff that, we're, that I'm talking about and that I've written about very much. And most of the time, I don't think about it either. I Really, you know, when you called for this interview, I haven't had a discussion about this and since I gave a talk last October somewhere. Yeah. Um, I find that uh, so surprising. Because, well, we're interested in... I mean, people come here because they want to learn to cut a dovetail or yeah. they want to learn to design a chair. It's the gratification of the actual work that yeah. drives them. Yeah. And that that's completely okay with me. Um, that's, that's what we're about. Now, I have to remember why I started to tell you all that. And <laughs> just give me a second. It's because I was fine arts and crafts celebrating the work of the hand, I have no idea. I got lost again. Well, the, the fine arts were dismissive of a skill and the crafts celebrate the skill and the materials. Yes. That, well, that, I guess I'm going to leave that as a statement as itself. The, the fine artist is trying to get to a result and how you get there, the, the actual physical work involved, is almost sometimes embarrassing to them. And, and for the craft person... The work we do employs skill. It makes skill evident. You don't, you, you don't have to join, for example, for people who choose to join furniture with dovetails, they didn't have to do that. But oh, let me say this a different way. What I'm about to say may be true and it may be total nonsense, but I believe it. It's that if you were a furniture maker in the 18th century, the early 18th century, the 17th century, and you were trying to make the highest possible quality of furniture, you would have used 
hidden mitre dovetails mm. for your carcass joinery mm. because the work that hid the work of the human hand mm. that all that leaves with the apparent mitre is work so perfect that it could have come from God's hands, not yours, if you see what I mean. Mm. And if you were using dovetails that were exposed, you were exposing the fact that someone actually labored to make that piece. It was less than perfect. Mm. But after the Industrial Revolution, it was really easy for people to manufacture things that looked perfect and flawless. And so the things flipped. And it was that what gave value to work is not that it looked so perfect it transcended human effort, but that the, it showed that an individual had made it with skill and care. Yeah. And so that's why we leave our dovetails apparent today, uh, where once they would have been hidden for the best possible work. They, they are what gives the work value. I have no idea why I started telling you that. It's going to keep <laughs> totally happening. good. Look, I've got a few ideas about that myself because being a woodworker, I happen to know that most of my clients don't really care if I expose my details or not. That's a craftsman's conceit. Very much so. There's a, um, I have a friend here in Maine named Doug Green who started a company year, many years ago called Green Design Furniture. Mm. And his drive was he had developed a system for assembling carcass work and seating with sliding tapered dovetails. And this was before CNC machines. So mm. he had developed his own overhead pin router for doing this joinery. And his idea was that he could now manufacture furniture that could be shipped flat pack, assembled by the consumer, and something, a huge percentage of furniture that gets shipped is damaged in shipping. So he was going to solve this problem. Yeah. And his business did well. He had, a, he had a lot of people buying his work. But it turned out when he did market research, they weren't buying it because it was assembled with the sliding dovetails and flat pack. <laughs> they were buying it because it looked nice once yeah. it was assembled, yeah. right? So yeah. he was driven by his concern, like we're driven by this need to cut dovetails, some of us, but that isn't what gave the work value to anyone else. So yes, that supports what you just said. Yeah. It's, uh, I think uh, for lots of woodworkers, when they find that out, it's a little bit confronting. Well, or freeing. Uh, yeah. Hey, look, absolutely yeah. freeing. You don't have to worry about it. That's exactly right. Mm. Yeah. And also, and I'm pretty sure this is something you were going to get around to talking to as well. What matters to makers about craft changes over time. So for yes. my generation that started making in that sort of first major burgeoning of craft in the 60s and 70, 1960s and 70s, it was all about developing your skills and making one-of-a-kind pieces of work that challenged and, and displayed your skills and your aesthetic ideas, your own personal aesthetic ideas. And so people like me tended to make very precious work. Yeah. work that was expensive because it was so demanding and time-consuming. That is not what interests most of our younger students today. They do want to learn to do work well, yeah. but they're not interested in making precious, one-of-a-kind gallery-type objects. They are interested in making products 
that that once they've developed a design, they could make in quantity or someone else could make in quantity. And it's, so it's not so much developing and displaying mastery that's important to them. It actually seems more to be developing designs that will somehow help other people I don't want to say enjoy their lives more. There's more of a there's more of a didactic quality to it often. It's like it's almost like work that will tell people or show people or open a door for people to living lives that are more meaningful and fulfilling. Mm. Um and and I don't think that's there's a sort of built-in fallacy in the idea of doing that. You know, it's sort of like physician heal thyself. You should figure out how to live a good life yourself before you start ex- telling other people how to do it. Mm. But there's something very beautiful in it, too, because still in creating that work that's meant to convey something of meaning to other people, the maker, the craftsperson, is discovering for themselves what, that, what, what matters to them. And it is exploring the idea, to the extent one does with furniture, which is a lot, of mm. how one should live. What, what 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 is the value of life? Because then, to quote myself, a piece of furniture describes the life to be lived around it. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. And the designer can achieve the same fulfillment that a craftsperson can achieve. So, uh, if you mean a designer of a product, there, if you remove the hands-on part, you have changed the nature of the experience. Hmm. I wonder though. I'm just I'm just exploring this idea that we really actually need the hands, or is it just the work that we need? Well, we need everything. We need everything and nothing. I mean, uh, which is to say, there is a value of experience that happens when you're actually having ideas and bringing them to the world with your own hands, and that is mm. different than the experience of bringing something into existence simply sitting at your computer. Mm-hmm. And um, both are... The process of coming up with new ideas and bringing them up to the, into the world, I'm going to describe it a different way. Mm. Every person, period, every person who's ever existed has a certain flexible, fluid picture in their minds of how the world around them is put together how it works, and how they fit in. Yep. And mostly that mental picture each of us carries, and it's different for each of us in some way, mostly all the ideas and perceptions in that come from the surrounding human environment. We pick mm-hmm. up the ideas of our society and the ideas of others, and we adopt them. And what's different about people who are engaged in creative activity again it could be in science it can be in business it can be in craft in any creative activity mm. is you are choosing to not accept every idea you've ever been given but to look at reality afresh for yourself yeah. and 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 to come up with to some extent your own ideas about how things work and how, by extension, how one should live, how, what, it is, what it is to be human, and how the planet works. And uh, that's the most important thing about creative endeavor. So 
So you can do that at a computer screen. You can do that in your workshop. Both are completely valid in that larger sense of exploring how we should live as human beings. But the level of satisfaction and fulfillment that you get from engaging with real materials in the real world in real time is very different than what happens at computer screens. And we get quite a few students here who who are really unsatisfied with their lives uh, having been programmers or whatever they did on computer screens. Yeah. And they have come to engage their bodies as well as their minds. And, and uh, of course, that's what we exist for. Yeah, yep. Look, this notion of using your body, you, you mentioned uh, another author in your book, Mahali Csikszentmihalyi, and his notion of flow. Flow, according to Csikszentmihalyi, is when the time ceases to exist and you're working and all of a sudden it's five o'clock and you go, oh my God, is that on the same page as what you've just been talking about? Uh, very much so, yeah. Um, and I will say I had the pleasure, I, I, I still don't really know how to say his name, but I, I say <laughs> Mihai Chiksen Mihai, which is pretty much what you just said. Is it? Yeah. And um, yeah. I was, I before I get to that, I will say I, I loved, reading his work, and I did a lot of reading while writing my book, yeah. uh, not only to discover what other people were thinking, but just to make sure I didn't read something that completely invalidated everything I was imagining, yeah. if, if that makes sense. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you're writing that book, was I was like blowing up a balloon, and I realized there might be, I might be so far astray, there might be something I would read that would be like sticking a pin in it which didn't happen, but I did send him the manuscript and ask if he would look at it, and he he was kind enough to actually like it and write a, what's called a blurb for the first edition. And um, and I, then I got to visit him, and uh, uh, it was just, it was a privilege. We didn't, ha we didn't sit around at lunch and talk about anything intellectual. We talked about what we were eating, but... Uh, <laughs> But it was a kick because I because I did I do look up to him so much. Anyway, that idea of flow, he he got right to the essential. He identified, I guess, the essential central pleasure of making, which yeah. is the fact that you lose yourself entirely in the process. Yep. Um, what he says is that he he then goes on to identify what he thinks are the generative conditions that are necessary to experience a, set, a sense of flow. And I, the, he lists 12 things, and I, I don't particularly want to relist them. No. Um, but, but he did identify the core thing right there. And he points out that you can have it in any field, and that it, it's something that he says happens to people when they're engaged in creative activity, which again is not necessarily the arts, but it happens in the science lab too. It happens in the kitchen. It's 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 where you are. You lose yourself in the work. How do I say this? Because well, let me say it differently. The thing he goes on to say is that creative people aren't working for money or fame or those external values they're working because they love the work itself yeah they would do it in any case from his point of view yeah right? that's and right. 
and while that may not be entirely true, that was another really valuable observation to have someone have made. I found uh, that it is something. That, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I found that book incredibly enlightening when I read it. It must be fifteen years ago now. That notion of flow, where time ceases to exist and you're challenged, but you're not overly challenged. That is the pathway to a good life. I've always, since I read his book, that's the way I saw it. It, it really spoke to me in my life as a younger craftsperson, designer, maker. Right, but you think about that's a, for me, that's, that's one of the central attractions of practicing a craft, for example, and engaging your hands that, yep. that, 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 that somehow brings us fully into the sense of flow bodily as well as mentally. Yeah. But I, but I wanted in myself that became a part of a larger picture that I was thinking about because that, that doesn't describe the ends of what you're doing. It just describes the means of what you're doing. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so what I, what, I tried to look at the ends too. In other words, what is it about? So if I made earlier, I made a distinction between meaning and fulfillment yeah. uh, in the beginning of our discussion, experiencing flow contributes to your sense of fulfillment, but I don't think it's what contributes to your sense of meaning, for mm. getting meaning in your life out of what you're doing mm. and the meaning in your life Again, this is going to sound really abstract because I'm going to the end of a long thought process without going through the whole thing, is the meaning comes from the fact that the activity in which you're doing is an activity through which you're going through a process of self-discovery and self-definition. So mm. let, let, me, um, let me go now, if I may, to the thing that I should have started with because um, there's a there's a philosopher, there was a philosopher in the 20th century named Isaiah Berlin. Right. And Isaiah Berlin resurrected a Greek philosopher's idea that you can divide human race into foxes and hedgehogs. And, and the, I, I don't have it exact in my mind, but the idea is the fox knows many things and the hedgehog just knows one big thing. Mm-hmm. So, the fox is a person who, who has a large breadth of knowledge and wisdom and sees a big picture. The hedgehog just has one big idea they're fixated on. And I wish I was a fox, but I'm a hedgehog. I only know one thing, really, and here's what it is. They, what I know is this, that when I was in my late 20s and I stopped showing my work at craft shows and I started showing in art galleries, I had to start writing artist statements. Mm. And the what I was writing for an artist statement in 1980 was, or 81, is that I was trying to make work that had the qualities of integrity and simplicity and grace. Mm. And then if you go forward, flash, if we flash forward 10 years from there, I was working at a place called the Anderson Ranch Art Center as a woodworking program director, and an art critic from New York came out to work for the weekend with me and the other three program directors for ceramics and photography and whatever it was, drawing and painting, and um, so, to work with us on writing artist statements. Mm. 
And in the process of writing that art, artist statement for myself, it became really clear to me that the reason I'd become a furniture maker in the first place was that I thought that by learning the craft and practicing it, I would cultivate more of the qualities of integrity and simplicity and grace within myself. And so in that crystallization, I realized that for me personally, I had gone into craft as a, as a willed process of self transformation. I didn't know what I was going to become by being, by learning to be a craftsman and practicing it. But I knew that I was going to be different Mm -hmm. as a result of it. And there were certain things I valued that I hoped it would bring me closer to, to embodying and thinking about that's the root of everything I've thought since that, Mm -hmm. that one realization that, that practicing a craft. And now I think that's true of practicing any creative art, dance, craft, painting and drawing, yep. the whole works, yep. is really a process of willed, creative self-transformation. You go into the studio, you don't know what you're going to come out with, but you have an expectation yeah. that, that you are going to come out of the studio feeling differently or knowing something you didn't know. And that's why you go in. All right? That's the truth that underlies everything else that I've tr- ever thought about, whether it's correct or incorrect. Um, and that's the thing I should have begun by saying, because that is the one thing I really feel that I know. Yeah, that's pretty profound, isn't it? Well, that's my starting point anyway. It's profound for me. Anyone else could think it's nonsense. Mm. But that's my truth. Yeah. Look, I think people finding truths like that is a real rarity. Like you, It's mentioned- a real what? Rarity. It's really rare. A rarity. Rarity, yeah. Like, I don't know, lots of people would probably have said to you in your life, oh, it's so wonderful you found a passion in your life. But that's not what it is. It's about trying to find a truth. Well, yes and no. I mean, I felt, I, you know, I went to a Quaker high school. I got a good education, fortunately. Mm. I, I studied history in college. I was at loose ends all, through all that time. I had, I, I hated being, I didn't hate, I didn't really like being in school and I was really sure that real life was somewhere else. Yeah. And so when I, when I left college or graduated from college, um, I, I, I was very much like everyone else I knew in my hippie generation, looking for some way to live a, a what would be a more fulfilling life than we perceived for our parents. Yeah. And that, that's what it, that in, somehow led me to carpentry and then woodworking. The way I got into furniture making is I'd been a carpenter for a couple of years, and I had some friends who were having a baby, and the child was due any day, and they were the first friends who were having a child. So mm. it was this great mystery. Uh, <laughs> I mean, not how it came about, but... <laughs> what, yeah. what it would be like to see a yeah. child come into the world. Yeah. And, um, and I made a cradle for them. And, and the three days it took to make that cradle uh, were transformative to my life because when I was finished, all I wanted to do was, was make things, fine furniture type things, and discover what it, in, in 1974 seemed like the lost art of furniture making. Yeah. And 
wait, so see, I got sidetracked again. <laughs> Put me back on path. We're talking about finding a truth. And oh, yes, oh, you got me back. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So good of you. All right. Um, so, what happened was starting at that age of 24, I was consumed. I didn't think about anything else but learning furniture making for a decade. No. It was like I didn't even put my head up. Right. Yeah. And I felt so lucky at that time and subsequently to have discovered by accident, mm. something that engaged me so fully because I saw most of my peers settling into things that they weren't really passionate about, yeah. but that would give them a livelihood that they, you know, eventually found by accident or necessity. And so I do think that that was one of the very lucky things in my life that I happened to have found a passion that has in one way or another absorbed me for a lifetime. Uh, and found it early, and and that's luck. I mean, there's so much luck in life, mm. and um, and that is separate from the fact that I happen to be of a of a mindset where I I chose to go through the path of writing that book and actually trying to think and read in depth about the things I was passionate about. That's a sort of a separate. I mean, yes, I'm of a mind cast to do that, but I could have not decided to do that exploration writing the book, and then I would, I would have less to blabber on about. Mm. I think as we get more skills in our craft, whatever that is, it's got to change. There's going to be a point mm -hmm. when you're practicing a craft where it's no longer challenging. You know, you've done your 10 years, your 10,000 hours or whatever it is, and you need to identify new challenges. And it seems to me that I'm wondering whether or not branching out into teaching, the school, writing the books is part of that for you. Like you've still got the same truth. That's a very positive way to describe it. The uh, the less charitable way might be that I found it, uh, that my I'm not well suited to making a living as a furniture maker in terms of my character. Um, <laughs> my my is a good way to put it. So you know, financial Peter, necessity. Yeah, Peter. Financial I, necessity drove me from one thing to another. But I don't think anybody can easily make a living as a furniture maker. I think it's in one of the most, any craft, I think, any art is probably one of the most hardest professions to engage in. It's extraordinarily marginal. We try to be really clear about that with our students who come yeah. from professional training. There's no question about that. So I can forgive myself for being terrible at the business of furniture making, but but that doesn't mean I wasn't. So, so when I yeah. was 17 years old, my summer job was was I worked on a, at a beachside resort on the island of Nantucket in Massachusetts. And my job, I was the umbrella boy. People would go to the office, rent an umbrella, come down the little boardwalk, and I was there out on the end of the, by the water with this box full of umbrellas. And my job was to go put the umbrella in the sand for them wherever they wanted so it wouldn't oh, blow away. Yeah. And, and I was primarily working for tips. And I am the only umbrella boy who ever worked at that place, which is long since closed, who never got a tip. <laughs> I, I wasn't well... <laughs> because I, 
Oh, I couldn't enough. understand why anyone at age 17, I couldn't understand why anyone would go to the beach and then sit under an umbrella. That was like so uncool from my point of view. Uh, so yeah. I just did not have a service industry character or mentality. Now, I hope that's changed because I'm, I'm in a service job now. I right providing education and trying to do it as well as possible. Mm. So I've mellowed a bit, but likewise, I, I wasn't really well suited to making a living as a furniture maker. And I think a lot of that is I, I'm not good at what feels like self promotion. It's hard for me to put my work out in other people and, and do the work of promoting it. And I wasn't, I was never a brilliant furniture maker. I wasn't like, I, you know, you've interviewed David Haig. There's a what I consider mm. a brilliant furniture maker. And he's come up with more than one design that sells itself. I mean, you just look at it. Any human being is going to want that thing. Oh, right? they're exquisite. I was, never, I was never that good, and I was never going to be that good. And that's a good thing to know about yourself. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I wouldn't be too hard on yourself, though. <laughs> I just think oh, I'm not being hard on myself. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm all, I'm all happy with the way things have yeah. worked out. I've got, yeah, true. Uh, mm. Yeah, and I'm listen. I've been, I've been in my shop every minute I get. Now that time has allowed, the school has slowed down. Yeah, uh, I'm the thing I'm working on is a chair design I started 30 years ago. I'm now on my seventh iteration of it, and. I find it endlessly pleasing, even though it may never be a good chair. Um, yeah. I I love doing the work. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's. I mean, there's that, and uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to put myself down as a human being or anything like that. I'm just saying I realize my limitations as a furniture maker, yeah. and especially because so many incredibly good ones come through this particular school to teach. I yeah. get to invite anyone in the world. I mean, they may not come, but I get to invite anyone in the world I want to meet to come teach. And um, and so I've, I've met a lot of people, and some of them are really good. So here's another story. When I lived out in – when I worked at Anderson Ranch Art Center in the 1980s, that's right in the Rocky Mountains. It's just outside of Aspen. Yeah. And and so I was in my 30s. I did a lot of hiking uh and so one day I was on a hike up to Buckskin Pass, which I think is at about 11,000 feet. And, and I had never hiked quite that far before. And even though I was very fit and in my 30s, that was at the place where, you know, you walk three or four steps, you stop and take a breath. You walk three or four mm-hmm. steps, you stop and take a breath. And I, I, I was young and fit. So I'm walking up here, uh, up a path like that, and this guy who's about my age, he comes running by <laughs> going uphill, wearing nothing but a loincloth, and or that's what it looked like. And, and he stopped for a second, and I said, this is, what, you're running up here? And he said, oh, yeah, I'm on a five-peak run. <laughs> he was going to run over five mountains in the time it was going to take me to walk up this one pass. And my point being that mm. I could have trained from birth. I mm. never would have been able to run those five mountains. There, yeah. We are born with different levels of innate ability. And even if we don't have, like, even if I was never going to be the world's most brilliant furniture maker, 
it was still open to me to get to make some things that were really nice, and that's true for everyone. Yeah. Uh, but you they have to acknowledge that some people do have a gift that they can then work hard to cultivate. Yeah, and you've used your gifts in so many ways that have facilitated other people cultivating that. Yeah, well, my... my in, the, the, uh, to talk about myself, um, the quality that I have may be perseverance. Uh, yeah. that, uh, that if I run into a wall, I keep running into the wall until finally I figure out I have to walk around it. And then I, <laughs> so that's, that's, yeah. that's led me to, to shift from being a furniture maker to be what, to being a, school administrator to being a school founder and director to being an author these things one thing adds to another but it's but it's it's just because of um being stubbornly perseverant Mm. do you know i read a book recently called outliers by malcolm gladwell and that was one of the characteristics of success apart from luck was perseverance yeah, luck's huge and perseverance. Yeah, I would agree with that, although I have mm. to say that you haven't quoted one of my favorite authors there. Oh, really? He, um, I, he, well, he's incredibly good at writing. Like, yes, I, I, I would, there are things I would give to be able to write as well as Malcolm Gladwell does, but I mean, I love reading his words, one following the other, but he, he takes... To my mind, I can't think of the exact right word for it, but he takes ideas and he simplifies them down to the point where they're actually where it becomes glib. Uh-huh. And uh, so I'm, I they're interesting, they're fascinating, but do they describe the world as it exists? Not really, because they they take one little part and they magnify it so much out of importance in yeah. a way. Uh, but. I'm glad he writes what he writes, and I certainly enjoyed reading that book myself. Yeah, yeah, good, yeah. Much uh, as I disliked reading it, I enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> the the ending of Outliers is so unsatisfactory. It just ends with a treatise on working hard. Well, good on you. Yeah, I thought he could have done a bit better with that. Mm. You know, I one of the things I read a lot when I was a boy. A uh, mm. huge amount. I, uh, that's what I did. As I go in my room and I would read adventure novels. And I, every time I started a book, and I'm talking about when I, I'm just imagining this was like between the ages of eight and sixteen. Every time I started a book, it started off so promising. Like yeah. it felt like by the end of that book, that author was going to have told me what the real what life was really about yeah. like the real secret of life and then by the time i got to the end of the book there was always a letdown uh because the author had not told me the secret of life but i'm thinking now if i went back and read those books i might see it differently because if someone were to tell you the secret of life you wouldn't hear it anyway it's it is it is so commonplace and humdrum it is as simple as like if if you read my book for me when i read it it's vibrant it's like for myself i actually think i know what it is to be human and yeah. and and how we should live but for anyone else reading it it's a whole lot of words on a page and 
they hear a few and not others, and it's vague. Um, that's the nature of words and writing, and the, the truth of life, the important truth, which have been said many times in many ways, how can I say, the truth is, you live, you die, there's not much you do in between that's going to make a big difference in the long run for everyone else, but mm. you try. Yeah. You do your best with with the little piece of it you're given. And at the moment, each of us is one among 8 billion voices. There's not a whole lot that each of us is going to do to change the conversation in a positive way. Yeah. But the point of it, from my point of view, is you try. Yeah. You engage in that larger conversation of how one should live in a what it, what a good life is. You try to live it and that's the best you can do. Yeah. So there's no romance or glory in that in the reality of it. And and when you're writing about it, I think the end of the book's always going to be a letdown because that's the only truth there is. Is there's there's 8 billion people all marching to their own drummers and each of our lives has an impact, but it's it's only one tiny little cell in this huge progressing organism, which is humanity. Mm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, look, it, it it does. It also brings forward ideas in my mind that, well, everyone's got their own truths, and to communicate those truths is super-duper hard, and if you could, you'd have solved all the problems, and those problems keep perpetuating themselves. It's it's a yeah. The meaning of life is a it's one life at a time, and it's the problem that can never be solved fully. To expect a book to do such a thing is um, probably impossible. Or, or the truth is simply so prosaic that <laughs> it's unsatisfying to hear it. I think that's uh, more what I'm trying to say. Uh, you've heard the so. truth a hundred times. You've, you've heard the truth in, in love your neighbor, or treat, you know, treat yeah. your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. You've heard the truth in every religion. There is a, there, the truth is there, stated in some way, and it's pretty prosaic, um, commonplace, and uh, not all in flashing lights. It's that, that, I think that's why it might seem disappointing to get to the end of a book. Yeah. There's a chapter in your book called Mental Maps, and in that chapter you talk about the notion that stories and myths are the characteristic of humans. They explain who we are and how the world works. Can you talk to Mental Maps a little bit? Yeah, I, re I referred to it earlier, and Mental Maps is not mm. my term. Uh, no. um, actually, I forget, I forget the name of the person who I lifted it from, but it's in the book. The observation is that Every person, once they're born, every human being, has to develop uh, some understanding of how the world around them works mm. so they can make decisions about what they need to do to survive or to thrive. And those understandings we have of the world, the stories we put together about how the world works around us, are always changing with new information that comes in from other people or from experience. And if you had to say what human beings are, the most, in some ways, yes, we're organisms. We need food. We need to, we need, we, you know, we want keep to keep the species going and procreate all those things. We are biological beings, yeah. but in terms of mentally, What's unique about us in the animal kingdom is that we have the adaptability to change our stories 
and change our behaviors with a flexibility that no other species has. Yeah. And that's why we've been so successful in overrunning and destroying the planet. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's because we have that power. So we have these mental maps. They're largely reflexive, which means we, nor- we largely adopt beliefs from our environment. And, um, and as I said earlier, the beauty of engaging in any sort of creative work is that you're actually proactively trying to explore or challenge elements of your mental map and see, mm. you see how you can rewrite them in ways that are more true. That's how I see creative work. So that's mental maps in a, in a nutshell. One of the qualities of them that makes practicing any creative art so, so morally important, so have meaning. Remember I said that things have meaning to the extent that we feel that our actions and thoughts make a difference in a larger moral sphere yep. is that when the ideas in any one person's brain or, or in books, which is taking things out of your brain and putting them on paper for transmission, you can think of those as contagious. I hate to talk about anything contagious when we're in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> it doesn't sound good, right? But yeah. nonetheless, ideas are contagious. Uh, yeah. There's nothing, anything I think is going to communicate itself to you whether I say it or not. In the, there's, the things I let leave unsaid, or, the, or if we were together looking, talking, and then we could see each other's bodily language, mm. we would be conveying things unspoken that are still deep-seated in our belief systems. And, yeah. and because ideas are so viral, if you go into the studio to make furniture, because you're interested in the creative process in discovering what more you can learn about how to live your own life well. The, the fact that you learn something about how to live your own life well is inevitably going to somehow communicate itself to some other people that you come in contact with, mm-hmm. whether it's by talking to you, just knowing you, seeing your furniture, however that communicates. And so by going to the studio for the private benefits of making things, you are actually still engaging in a conversation and communicating with others about what it is to be human, how we should live. And so you're taking part in that larger conversation. Mm. And that's what gives craft work or creative work meaning is by we're automatically by engaging in it engaging in the one conversation that's gone on through all of history that matters, the largest conversation, which is the human species trying to define and redefine and redefine and redefine what it is and how people should live and what our relationship is to the larger universe. Mm. Are we stewards of nature? Are we exploiters of nature? Things like that. Those are, those are constantly shifting discussions. They're unfolding right now. Mm. I've pretty much covered all the things that I wanted to talk about. I just wanted to add one more note, and that is that you talk about throughout the book who I am and how I should live, but at the end it becomes who are we and how we should live. I just think that is such a wonderful thing. Uh, yeah, I mean... Uh you're not the first person to comment on it. And as I was writing, 
I didn't think about it very much, that transition, until looking back at having written it. Um, but I realized it's a, it's just a story of any person growing up. Yeah. You know, you, you start off incredibly self-absorbed. When, you're, when one is young, one is engaged in this very flagrant process of self-definition, right? You, 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 yeah. start to, you start to get tattoos and piercings <laughs> because you're trying to be different than everybody, except for it turns out you're being the same as everybody because everyone in your age cohort's doing it. Or in my generation, you grew your hair long and yeah. you wore ragged blue jeans and you thought you were becoming an individual. You work hard to become an individual, from a from a child to an individual adult, young adult, and then um, at some point, I think most people start to understand that they aren't all that individual in the sense that value is to be found in the extent to which you contribute to and belong to a larger community. You can't help but belong to a larger community. Yeah. You're intimately linked with all of humanity, but. Uh, for my story, at least the way the part you're observing is just a normal story of, I think, growing up and um, and realizing that it's not about I, yeah. uh, it is about we. Yeah. Oh, I think that's a fantastic way to end it. It's been a wonderful conversation. I thank you so much for your time, Peter. Well, I really appreciate uh, the fact that you're taking the effort to talk about these kinds of ideas with lots of people. And I appreciate the chance of actually being able to uh, talk on and on and on about this to someone who will listen. Uh, so thank you very much. Oh, look, it's such a pleasure. Look, have a great day and uh, stay healthy. Okay, you too, Adrian. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.